Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. Olga Tokariuk is a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and an independent journalist and researcher based in Kiev, Ukraine. She writes mainly about Ukrainian politics, international affairs, and the study of disinformation and its impact on democracies worldwide. Ms. Tokariuk holds an MA in Political Science and International Relations from the University of Bologna in Italy and in journalism from the Taras Sepchenko University of Kiev. She has vast experience working with Ukrainian and international media, such as the EFE News Agency in Spain, RAI and ANSA in Italy, BuzzFeed News, National Public Radio in the United States, ABC in Australia, and many other outlets. Olga, I'm delighted to have you as our guest for today's Global Governance podcast. We met in Madrid, as you will remember, while you were reporting for Ukrainian radio and other media outlets on the NATO summit. And I was really impressed with your ability to present various aspects of the current crisis in your country in a way that was informative and insightful. So to get started, Olga, nearly five months into the war, tell us a little bit about the ways in which this conflict has affected your life and that of your family, your friends, your colleagues. You know, one reads in the press about millions of refugees and displaced people. One sees the massive death and destruction caused by Russia's unprovoked aggression. But behind these horrible statistics, there are, of course, human stories. So for our listeners, Share with us a sense of everyday life today in your country. Hello, Augusta. It's an honor to be a guest at your podcast. Well, uh, in fact, the biography uh, that you cited, it needs to be updated because of war. It's a bit obsolete because um, I'm not based in Kyiv anymore. Because of war, I had to leave my home, my house in Kyiv and move to Western Ukraine, where I'm currently based. I might be going back to Kyiv soon, but not yet, because I have a daughter uh, who is seven years old, and I feel it's not yet safe to to go back to Kyiv. So, of course, you know, because of war, I personally was affected. I had to take care of my family, of my daughter, to bring them to safety. But also as a professional, I had to decide whether I should stay in Ukraine or go uh, abroad, as many Ukrainians have done. And as a journalist, I also felt it's my duty to stay here and to report, continue telling the world what is happening in Ukraine. So, you know, that's that was like the personal choice that I also had to make because of war. Of course, I think I'm in a more privileged position than many other Ukrainians, than millions of people who have lost their homes because my home in Kyiv is still intact. So if I want to, I still have a place to go back to. I haven't lost my relatives in this war, unlike many other Ukrainians. But of course, my life has been affected in, in other ways. Um, what's the, you know, the how does it feel to be in Ukraine, to live in Ukraine uh, these days? 
just uh, uh, earlier today, of course, I don't know when actually this podcast will be published, so I'll try to say it in maybe a, a bit kind of way that will be still relevant. Every day in Ukraine, um, we receive terrible news of more and more civilians being killed. And just before we recorded this conversation, several hours before, Russian missiles uh, killed about 20 civilians in Vinnytsia, in a city which is almost in western Ukraine. It's, it's in central Ukraine, but close to west. So it's about 200 kilometers from where I, I am currently based. Killing also children, a mother and a small child were among the, the victims. And, you know, watching this, you get the feeling that you can't be safe actually nowhere in Ukraine. While here in, in the western part of the country, it somehow feels safer because the fighting is going on mostly in the east. The occupied territories are in the south. But Russian missiles actually can get you anywhere, regardless, you know, of where in Ukraine you are, because Ukrainian sky is not protected. We do not have enough missile air defense to protect uh, civilians from Russian missiles. And it also seems that Russians are actually somehow, um, you know, they are targeting civilians as a revenge for their losses on the battlefield. So just as Ukrainian forces started to uh, destroy a lot of Russian military bases and ammunition depots using new Western weapons that Ukraine received in recent weeks and months. Russians started uh, taking heavy losses and it looks like they are, you know, they want to revenge that they are angry and they want to revenge it, taking this anger on Ukrainian civilians, on innocent women, children whom they are killing with, with their missiles in cities very far away from the front line, very far away from the area that they, in their own words, want to conquer, like Donbass or southern Ukraine. So it's this, I think, overarching feeling of insecurity is something that kind of every Ukrainian who stayed in the country feels. That there is no safe place in the country, that there are things that are out of your control. You cannot control uh, your life, you cannot plan your life. But at the same time, there is also a feeling of resolve, which is not fading away, which is continuing, resolve to resist, resolve to fight, resolve to stay this here in this country, because it's our country, it's our home. Thank you. Thank you, Olga. That's a very gripping account of life in the Ukraine at the moment. And let me let me pick up on on, on, on this issue of resolve that, that you mentioned at the, at the end of your of your answer. We know that good leadership can have a great impact in establishing the foundations for peace, for security, for, for prosperity in a country. And to many of us in the West, and maybe to many of the people in the audience at the event in Madrid that, where you spoke, um, President Zelensky seems to have played a pivotal, a very important role in creating a sense of national cohesion and purpose and in catalyzing the support of many other nations to help Ukraine defend itself. Is this how he is seen in Ukraine, in your own country, resourceful, empathetic, patient, and incredibly courageous? 
Mostly yes. According to latest polls, about 80% of Ukrainians support President Zelensky and his actions after the full-scale Russian invasion started, which is really remarkable compared to uh, his level of support back in December last year, which was barely uh, 30%. So uh, the fact that he managed to unite the country in the face of this external aggression coming from Russia is really remarkable and unique. And I think partly his success and the fact that he's so trusted both in Ukraine and abroad is because first, he's a very genuine, so he's acting in a very sincere way. He's doing the things that reflect the will of Ukrainian people. And this, I think, is another reason of his popularity and the trust that he has, because the people in Ukraine mostly feel that he represents them, even those who didn't vote for him. For example, I didn't vote for him at the presidential elections, but I can say that he represents me as a president facing, you know, this Russian aggression and full-scale war, what he does and how he communicates with the world and how he communicates with Ukrainians. So he managed to um, kind of get and understand this sentiment in the society, the sentiment also of resilience, of willingness to stand up and not bow down under this uh, brutal aggression of Russia. So he managed to capture that. And he also um, not only, you know, kind of takes his inspiration from Ukrainian people, but he also inspires them with his own leadership, with the fact that he didn't flee the country, that he decided to stay uh, facing also a danger to his own life and to the life of his family. Uh, but of course, you know, this is something, this mobilization and like this high level of support is something that I think is to be also expected in the situation of such an existential threat that Ukraine faces in the very first months. And I think what Russia will be working on now, and we already see that Russian disinformation actors on social media are working on that, on trying to undermine this image of Zelensky of, uh, you know, as a strong leader, as a leader capable of uh, leading his country, of uniting people, both in Ukraine and abroad. So we see an, att an attempt to portray him as an actor, as someone who is just, you know, just like playing his role. Uh, we see it in some Western uh, media as well, like some experts or so-called experts who are, who are saying such things. And also inside Ukraine, we, we see the attempts to kind of crack this unity that exists in, inside the society and to undermine Ukrainian support in their own government. But so far, these attempts are failing. But I think we can expect more of that as more time passes by and Ukrainians feel the impact of this war, like really brutal, tragic impact in terms of human lives, in terms of economic losses, in terms of uh, humanitarian uh, situation. Thank you. Thank you, Olga. That is interesting. You know, from a distance, um, one is impressed by the courage, by the resourcefulness and determination of the government in Kiev and the people to defend themselves against Russian aggression and to protect the achievements of the, the, of the past three decades when Ukraine, as you well know, emerged as, a, as an independent nation following the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union. I'm going to ask you to help our listeners understand 
why the Russian government sees the Ukraine as a as a threat to its security. The very idea seems ludicrous to many of us in the West, but Russia is apparently willing to bear the very heavy cost of sanctions and the resulting destruction of its economy for a war that seems to provide no apparent strategic benefits. So how do people like you, I mean, you are well connected with the, with the media in your country, your colleagues, the scholars and the experts in the think tanks in Ukraine, um, how do they understand Russians' motivations in trying to destroy your country? This is a very good question and there are no simple answers. First of all, I think uh, we have to keep in mind that this war has not started on February 24th of this year. Russia launched an invasion of Ukraine back in 2014 after annexing Crimea without firing a single shot because Ukraine was not resisting the annexation of the peninsula. So after that, Russia started an invasion of Donbass using its proxy forces there, using its special agents, and the war low-intensity war, which was almost non-present in the Western media in recent years, has been going on for eight years, and people in Ukraine are very well aware of that. So what started on February 24th is just a, a new stage of this war that has been going on for eight years, a full-scale invasion that affected all of Ukraine's territory. And again, some people in Ukraine would even argue that this war has not started eight years ago that actually it's a continuation of Russian imperialist and colonial policy towards Ukraine that was in place for centuries. That Russia tried to subjugate Ukraine in Russian empire, then in the Soviet Union it tried to erase Ukrainian national identity, Ukrainian culture. Russia persecuted Ukrainian intelligentsia. If we are speaking about the 20th century, we can remember just several uh, important events that marked, uh, you know, that, that are um, confirmations of this imperialistic policy of Russia uh, towards Ukraine. An artificial famine of the 1930s known as Holodomor, where uh, at least 3 million Ukrainian peasants have died then uh, persecution of Ukrainian intelligentsia and Ukrainian professionals, Ukrainian writers, engineers, scientists in the 1930s when thousands of these people were shot or sent to gulags. And actually these repressions, uh, the Ukrainians who were sent to gulags, continued for all the existence of the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union also Ukrainian language was marginalized, Russian was... Uh, the language that everyone had to speak uh, to make a career. And Ukrainian culture in general was presented as something inferior. And Ukrainian people were often felt as lesser inferior people. This is again something that we see again in Russian propaganda of uh, today. And actually, if we are speaking about the last eight years, Russian propaganda that portrayed Ukrainians as sort of imperial people of fascists, Nazis, dehumanized them in all in different ways. I think it contributed a lot also to what is happening to this genocide that is happening in Ukraine now. So the first step was to dehumanize people and then the next step is actually to proceed with killing these people 
that you can justify with this dehumanization because they are not humans, they are Nazis or something, what Russians are saying. So that's one part, you know, a part of the answer. But another part of the answer, I think, is the uh, regime in Russia itself, a kleptocratic regime that is based on the power uh, limitless, absolutely a power that, that is not checked, uh, that has no, um, that no one can uh, can influence, can no one can actually uh, uh, um, ask questions to. So this unquestioned limitless power that Putin has in Russia and also the impunity that his regime uh, acted with for the last decades, not only inside Russia where uh, all the opposition was crushed, all the independent media were crushed, all the civil society were, was crushed, but also on in the international arena where Russia conducted aggressive wars before Ukraine in Georgia, in Chechnya, in Syria, and it always get away with it, like without any punishment. So at some point, I think Putin just felt that no no one can stop him, that he can continue this aggressive policy, bring it to a new level and somehow enter history books as a as someone who restored Russian empire, who brought Ukraine under its control. Why Russia is so obsessed with Ukraine? Well, first, as I said, it's history. Russia feels it cannot be an empire without Ukraine, as Bignev Brzezinski famously said. But also because independent, free, democratic Ukraine uh, represents a threat to this authoritarian, repressive, kleptocratic Putin's regime in Russia. Like they cannot afford to have a prosperous democratic state because they are afraid that it will be an example for Russians. They can, they can see that actually a democratic country can be successful, can be prosperous, can be economically successful. And, 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 and this economic aspect is very important because Ukrainian economy, even despite the war, despite COVID, has been growing. And last year, for the first time, the average salary in Ukraine was equal to the average salary in Russia. I think this was also one of the reasons why Putin launched this invasion, to destroy Ukraine, to destroy all the achievements, the democratic achievements, economic achievements, developmental achievements that Ukraine has achieved in uh, in this 30 years of its independence. Russia was trying really hard to get Ukraine under its control since Ukraine's independence. It never accepted independent Ukraine. It was first doing it with uh, using its agents of influence in the Ukrainian politics, in Ukrainian economy, by also maintaining the corruption in Ukraine because it was in Russian interest to keep Ukraine poor and corrupt. But when they started failing it with this so-called soft power, I don't know if we can call it soft power, but let's call it so in comparison to conventional military power that they are using now, after they failed to uh, achieve desired results with the soft power, then they switched to hard power, starting the military invasion of Ukraine in 2014 and continuing it on a full-scale basis this year. Sorry, this was a long answer, but the question is too complex. No, no, thank you. It was a very good answer. And in fact, you, do, you did anticipate something that I was going to ask you uh, in connection with you know, the emergence of Ukraine as a, as a sort of mature democratic nation, uh, uh, fully integrated with the, with the rest of Europe, as perhaps being the real threat to, to Russia's uh, current regime. Let me shift gears a little bit and, uh, and um, sort of tap into uh, an area where you have written quite a bit. Uh, and I, I refer in particular to, to disinformation, 
the influence of which seems to have increased across the world uh, in recent years and and now has infected even well-established democracies such as the United States, where, as you well know, currently there is an investigation underway about a coup attempt in January of uh, 2021. Now, one way to interpret the passivity and subservience of the Russian population to the government's narrative about the war and you, you mentioned some of these things, you know, the, the need to liberate Ukraine uh, from Nazis, uh, uh, to prevent the U.S. and its allies from using Ukraine as a Trojan horse to defeat Russia and other such nonsense that one hears, is to say that they have, that is, the Russian population has been brainwashed by Russian television and other media, which are now the tools which the government uses to maintain its hold on, on power. Is this, in your view, and you have written a, a lot about this, this subject, a correct reading of the situation? Can disinformation turn a nation of some 140 million people into a herd of unthinking, unquestioning enemies of your country? Well, I think uh, we here have to distinguish also between disinformation and propaganda. Because what is going on on Russian state television, for example, and has been going on for eight years, is more than just disinformation. This is really pure propaganda, similar to the one that has been used in Rwanda in the 1990s that led to genocide, that has been used by Nazi Germany. This is not an exaggeration. If you watch clips of Russian state TV, what they are saying specifically about Ukraine, but also about the Western countries, you will hear a lot of like really warmongering rhetoric, threats to use nuclear bombs, of course, comparisons of Ukrainians with Nazis, cockroaches, so like really genocidal language and pure propaganda and incitement uh, to genocide and incitement of hatred. Disinformation is something that Russia uses for the external audience, because such a blatant propaganda will not work, especially in Western democratic countries. But disinformation is something that can be useful and that proves to be useful. The, the goal of disinformation is not as much to convince the audiences of something that Russia wants to believe, but to confuse the people in Western democracies so they do not believe in anything. They do not believe in their own democratic values. They do not believe that democracy matters, that they do not trust their own institutions and governments, and that they question everything, regardless of the facts. This is another feature of uh, Russian disinformation. Like It doesn't care about the facts, and the versions of interpretations of facts that Russia presents are very often conflicting. So it's not uh, something unusual for uh, Russian uh, state media or Russian officials or Russian affiliated uh, social media assets to peddle theories that seem to be contradicting themselves. It makes perfect sense for them because their goal is not to convince people of something but just to confuse them and also to push them into apathy, to push them into kind of saying that, well, we don't know what the truth is, so we just won't do anything with it. We won't react to these terrible atrocities that happened in Bucha, for example, because we don't know, maybe it was just all staged because Russian state media and Russian assets in the West peddled this theory that 
people in Bucha were not executed, they were actors who were brought there. This theory is nothing new. This is something that Russia used, for example, back in 2014, uh, after the uh, uh, shutdown of the um, plane MH17 over Donbass. Actually, we are approaching the anniversary of uh, this uh, tragedy on July 17th. So. Again, back then, Russians uh, were coming up with this uh, crazy theory that uh, actually there were already dead bodies on, on board of that plane, that there were no people who were alive, so it was all staged. They are saying the same now about Bucha, about other places where they commit war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. And some part of the public in the Western countries believes it, because... Well, there could be different reasons why. They might be unhappy with the rise of prices, uh, of petrol, with inflation, with something. Uh, they might be unhappy that uh, their government, as they think, is spending the money on helping Ukraine instead of helping citizens in these countries. So for some audiences, this was always will always work. And of course, there will always be some we might call them useful idiots or people who are actually paid by the Russian government who are in influential positions in the Western countries who will peddle these disinformation uh, theories and narratives and will use them to undermine uh, the truth, actually, and undermine in this particular occasion the support to Ukraine. This is a really uh, dangerous situation. Uh, I think now the danger of uh, Russia using and you know manipulating disinformation with the goal to undermine Ukraine is, is very real. As the war goes on, and especially people in the West start feeling an impact in terms of rising prices, as we are entering a uh, closer to autumn and winter period. And of course, uh, part of Europe is heavily reliant on Russian gas for heating and for its industries. As uh, Russia, uh, also because of Russian blockade of Ukrainian ports, uh, people in the global south uh, start to feel food crisis and suffer from famines. There will be more and more voices blaming Ukraine for this, not Russia, that actually is the primary cause of all this, but blaming Ukraine, blaming the victim. And as there are less journalists who are working on the ground and who are reporting what is happening in Ukraine, there might be less journalists, but the disinformation actors and propagandists will always be there. So I think we should be aware of that. We should keep that in mind. And we should never, kind of, especially people in the West, I think, should never fall for this thing that there exists, like no truth exists and no facts exist. No, facts exist. It's it's not uh, true that uh, all opinions are equal. Opinions based on facts are more valid than opinions based on lies. And this is what Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation wants us to believe, that all opinions are equal regardless of whether they are fact-based or not. Yeah, well, I think I can certainly agree with you, Olga, on the importance of facts. Um, I think I may have mentioned to you that I lived and worked in Moscow for several years during the 1990s. I was uh, a representative of the International Monetary Fund at that time. And it was a period when there was some hope that Russia might make a gradual transition into democratic forms of governance and begin a process of gradual integration with the global economy. Um, as you know, um, I'm not going to teach you Soviet history, by the early 1990s, the Soviet Union was an economic wasteland. 
70 years of communism had managed to impoverish its nearly 300 million people, despite its immense natural resource wealth. And so over the next three decades, you know, from the collapse of the Soviet Union for the next three decades, Russia became more prosperous. That's undeniable. Although its democratic transition uh, suffered at some point an early death, my question to you is, how does this conflict end for Russia? The complete destruction of your country and the takeover of its government, is that, is that a, a, a scenario that is being pursued by them? As you will remember, the last time that this was attempted by the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1970s and 1980s, the experiment did not end very well for them. So what is the likely outcome? Well, um, I'm not an expert on Russia, and I usually try to, you know, avoid speaking very much about that country because it's not my country. But of course, since it attacked Ukraine, I can speak from the Ukrainian perspective. Well, from the Ukrainian perspective, certainly uh, Russia looks as a major security threat, not just to Ukraine, but as a major global security threat. And I think it's not just a Ukrainian perspective. We've seen at the NATO summit in Madrid that in the new NATO strategic concept, Russia was defined as a uh, strategic uh, threat to NATO countries as, as well. Russia is behaving as a terrorist state without exaggeration in Ukraine, when it attacks civilians in broad daylight, when it attacks shopping malls and just fires its missiles on central squares of the cities during the day when they are full of families, people with children, uh, you know, doing their uh, chores, like just going about uh, their life. So, uh, Russia is a major security threat, not just to Ukraine, but a major global security threat that has to be dealt with. And Russia pretended to do something in Ukraine that actually it has no capability to do. We see that it failed in its initial plan to overthrow the government in Kyiv, to occupy a lot of Ukrainian territory. Russia had to withdraw from northern parts of Ukraine, from Kyiv, Chernihiv, Suma region, after the first less than two months of its invasion. And it's actually suffering heavy losses also in Donbass. So in the five months of war, it managed just to occupy only one Ukrainian region, Luhansk, which it already had half of it under its control before this full-scale invasion. Russia also occupied some parts of southern Ukraine, but what we see there, they cannot have an effective control over those territories because there is a very strong insurgent movement. And every day there are reports of Russians or their collaborators being killed by Ukrainian partisans, basically a partisan insurgent movement has appeared there because people do not accept uh, a Russian occupation. So even if Russians manage to occupy some territory, not destroying this territory before, like they did in Donbass, in Mariupol, in Severodonetsk, in other places, because there basically they raised those cities to the ground and they killed a significant part of the population, of uh, civilian population of the cities. So in southern Ukraine, where they occupied relatively, like with little blood uh, shed in very first days after the invasion, they still can't have total control because of the opposition of Ukrainians who live there, who do not want to live in this authoritarian, repressive, poor state that provides no actually prospects. 
And this, I think, is also a crucial uh, thing. Uh, what can future of Russia as it is now look? Russia is becoming an international pariah. It, it has been isolated. It has been uh, sanctioned. Uh, its economic ties with the uh, most of the world has been severed. It doesn't have any access to uh, high-tech uh, technologies. Uh, uh, all almost all the most important brands from clothing to food and to um, uh, industry exited Russia. What kind of prospect does it offer for its own citizens? Like what kind of price are they paying for this war, for this adventure, terrible, tragic adventure that uh, their president has initiated? And how long is it possible to keep uh, population in Russia united or in fear of rebellion, of standing up to Putin as their uh, quality of life and economic situation deteriorates and it will deteriorate in inevitably. So, you know, it, it's a very unpredictable situation. I don't know what future in Russia will look like, but from the Ukrainian perspective, certainly the goal of Ukraine is to have a demilitarized, denuclearized Russia, only then uh, it will stop being a security threat, not just to Ukraine, but to the world. My next logical question, Olga, and, and thank you for those, for those comments, of course, is to ask you, how does the conflict end for the Ukraine? Most experts seem to be agreed that the war will be long and protracted. Um, Russians' military superiority is undeniable, and its apparent willingness to commit war crimes and to punish innocents elsewhere in the world. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, famine uh, uh, appearing this year and next in Africa and in other countries because of disruptions to, to the markets for grain, for seed oils, for fertilizers, and so on. This means that a great deal more suffering and devastation may come in the coming months as the Russian military tries to regain the initiative. And you already alluded to some of this in your earlier remarks. Do you see the West as being firm and steadfast in its support for your country to defend itself against Russian aggression? Or will the Ukrainian people perhaps simply at some point, uh, because of sheer exhaustion and the physical and psychological burdens of a of a horrible war simply, you know, give up? Well, I think we can be sure of one thing, that Ukrainians will not give up because they can't. If they give up, they will be exterminated. And we are seeing that happening in the territories that are currently under Russian occupation. Southern Ukraine that I just mentioned, well, there is widespread uh, human rights abuse and repression there. People are being kidnapped, people are being tortured killed without trial. Uh, Russia is conducting also a policy of mass deportations of Ukrainians to Russia. One of the first things it does when it occupies territory, it bans the education in Ukrainian language, so it brings Russian school books. So basically tries to conduct genocide on various levels, including cultural genocide of Ukrainians. And Ukrainians are well aware that it will happen anywhere where Russia is allowed to occupy more land. And this is an explanation of this Ukrainian 
resilience and resistance very strong and fierce with a lot of sacrifices because, of course, Ukraine is suffering heavy losses. Ukraine is, uh, is losing its best and brightest people who went to the front line, many of them as volunteers. And these are people who had no military background. Some of my friends who used to work as journalists, who were writers, artists, lawyers, engineers, IT professionals, photographers, they joined the army because they felt that, well, they have to defend their own families, they have to defend their land, they have to defend their country because they knew what happens if they don't do that. And we see what Russia is doing if it grabs Ukrainian territory. We've seen that in the east of the country, we've seen that in Bucha that was temporarily, thankfully, under Russian occupation. And we see that in Kherson and in other parts of southern Ukraine. So there is no question whether Ukrainians will resist. They will resist, they will not give up. The question is, what price of this resistance. This price is already very high and it can be even higher. And here we come to the variable, to something that can actually make this price not as high, that can help to end this war sooner. And this is the reaction and the support from the West. Of course, Ukraine has been receiving a lot of support in recent months, a lot of rhetorical support, also practical support. But it should continue and it should be stepped up. We are seeing that uh, this uh, long-range uh, Western uh, weapons that arrived on the battlefield just a couple of weeks ago are starting already to make a huge difference. Like this HIMARS American uh, weapons that Ukraine just received. In the last two weeks, uh, more than a dozen Russian ammunition depots were destroyed using these uh, high-precision weapons. And I want to emphasize that because they do not uh, uh, cause a lot of collateral damage. They do not kill civilian population. They are high-precision weapons. They target military bases and military targets and destroy the ammunition that Russia uses to conduct its war to launch missiles on Ukrainian civilians. So Ukraine needs more of this uh, very modern, high-precision weapons to be able to defend itself, just to defend itself. Ukraine does not want to uh, uh, attack Russia or other countries. It doesn't need like uh, to grab uh, other countries' land as Russia does. What Ukraine wants to do, it wants to defend its own people, mostly people, because we are not fighting for the territories. They are not as important, but the people who live on these territories are, are important. We cannot allow our people to... Um, we cannot just tell them, well, we give up, so sorry, but you will be living in, in a repressive state, so you will have to accept that your loved ones will be thrown into prisons without like any reason, that they will be tortured there, that they might be killed and raped there. Like, it's impossible, of course, for any like, Ukrainian official, but for any Ukrainian citizen to say this thing to, to their fellow citizens. So when I hear in the West people saying, well, why doesn't Ukraine just give up? Why doesn't Ukraine just like make some compromise with Russia and give it some land? I, I always want to stress, it's not about land. It's about people when we are saying, well, we sh Ukraine should give up or should uh, give Russia what it wants, give it uh, more territories. It means that you just justify the repression and the human rights abuses and the torture and rape and killing of civilian population that will be committed by Russia because it, it has done so. It continues to do so. It has no intention to stop it. So the only choice for Ukraine, the only solution is to continue resisting, continue fighting. And the variable how long this war will go on is only like, 
it's it's in the West's hands. How long the West will be able to support Ukraine to supply it with weapons? Will it get more of the weapons that uh, are making a difference on the battlefield? So it's actually a lot of it in in the hands of other countries. Well, because Ukraine is not just fighting for itself; it's protecting. Uh, it's protecting Europe. It's a shield of Europe, and it's a shield that pro- is protecting democracy worldwide. Thank you, Olga. Those are very eloquent, um, very passionate remarks. Um, let me ask you to conclude this uh, extraordinary podcast. I don't know how else to characterize it. You, your eloquence is is really quite uh, quite impressive. By asking you perhaps a somewhat difficult question. And let me warn you, this question is not intended to offend in any way. But my question is, do you see an upside to this war over the longer term? And and by this, I mean the following. This crisis has uh, once again underscored the dysfunctionality of the United Nations Security Council. You know, just think of what's happening there, right? One of its members, Russia, is in violation of its most basic obligation under the UN Charter, and yet can remain a member of the United Nations. It can veto its resolutions and obstruct other responses intended to restore peace and security in your country, which is, of course, the United Nations' most elementary function. It is the reason why the organization was created in the first place. The war highlights the costs we face by our failure, by our, I mean, the international community, all of us together, to address the basic flaws in our global governance system. And in this sense, might there be a future upside to this tragedy unfolding in your country because it is the catalyst which makes our leaders finally come to grips with these flaws and move to correct them. What do you think? Well, I certainly wish, you know, the lessons are learned from this war, but I'm not sure they will be. And actually, I want to go back, you know, to the previous question and to your reaction. You said I was passionate, but I want to stress that this is not the emotion that is driving my responses. This is a completely rational view. Russia is a security threat. Russia is a threat not just to Ukraine, but wider uh, on a wider level to global democracies and to Europe. And Ukraine is a shield of Europe. So while I might seem, you know, and sound uh, passionate because I'm here in Ukraine, I'm personally affected by this war, but I'm also basing my arguments on facts and on rational things. And I think it will be an interest not just of Ukraine at this point to stand up to Russia and to stand up with force and courage. Because what kind of worries me and why I'm, you know, I have doubts that the lessons will be learned is that the reaction that I'm seeing currently from some Western countries, not all of them, but in some countries, there is still a reluctance to admit that their mistakes were made in the Russian policy in previous years and decades, that, for example, the energy dependency that some European countries, such as Germany, had led themselves into the energy dependence on Russia was a mistake, and that Ukraine and Europe and Germany is now paying the price of that mistake. So while uh, um, there is a very kind of lukewarm uh, discussion on uh, uh, was it a mistake and why uh, this energy dependency was not good, 
I do not see that uh, the right conclusions are being drawn. And we've seen, you know, now the pressure on Canada to, uh, uh, in exemption of sanctions, to release a, a turbine to Russia for a Nord Stream, two, Nord Stream 1 pipeline. I mean, it, this is not the kind of reaction uh, to Russians' actions that uh, is capable of stopping Russia and of showing Russia that actually the European Union or major powers in the European Union and in wider transatlantic community are united and that they are ready to stand up uh, to uh, Russian aggression, not just against Ukraine, but also Russian energy blackmail. So this is just like one example why, you know, I have my doubts that lessons might not be learned. I think what we all need on the level of national governments, but also on the level of like wider international supranational institutions such as the European Union, NATO, but also, of course, on the level of United Nations that you mentioned, we need a honest debate about the mistakes that have been made in uh, relation to our Russia policy and how to correct uh, these mistakes, how to develop a strategy that will not repeat uh, previous errors and that will actually make a difference. And I think in this context, those countries that have the most experience uh, dealing with Russia, the most like shared uh, common history with Russia, and I'm not just speaking about Ukraine, but about countries of Central Europe, Baltic states, I think those countries who were for years warning that this policy is catastrophic, it will lead to dependency, it will lead to weakness, it will lead, it will embolden Putin to ramp up his aggressive actions. Very often those countries were not listened to. So I think now when we develop a new policy, we should listen to those who are warning us for all these years about the dangers of such a policy. And of course, uh, the issue of um, the UN and wider international system is yet another issue and another honest debate should be held on whether the global international order that has been established after the World War II whether it's still functioning, whether the institutions that were created with an aim to preserve peace and stability, are they still relevant? Are they really making a difference? Or have they been hijacked by the states who have immense power, but who abuse this power constantly while committing severe violations of international law, international humanitarian law, committing possible war crimes. So I think, uh, you know, it's an opportunity, of course, like this moment of crisis and, of course, of terrible tragedy of Ukrainian people. It's also an opportunity for other countries and international institutions to make a breakthrough towards a more just and better functioning world. But only if there is a honest debate about past mistakes and uh, a strategy is developed, how to move further, not based on fear, not based on, uh, you know, blackmail, on, on fear. I think what is now driving many uh, countries' policy is fear. But fear cannot define a strategy. You know, no strategy can be based on fear. It's, it's not constructive. It's not going to work. So an honest debate uh, without fear about past mistakes and about future strategy needs to be held. And only in this case, there is a chance that there is something good actually in the end that comes out of this terrible tragedy, Russian invasion of Ukraine.
Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. 